This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. Hey everybody, this is Limit Up, and uh, what a wild week we are already off to. It is Tuesday, 1.54 p.m., and that is March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Um, hopefully all of you guys out there are having a great week so far, had a nice weekend, and uh, you know, enjoying some time, relaxing at home, staying inside a little bit. Jack's out this week. Um, he is down in the Bahamas, uh, enjoying a little bit of time on the beach. Hopefully he's having a good time, and... Uh, not too miserable down there. I hear the weather this time of year is just brutal down on the islands. Nonetheless, um, he's missing out on some exciting markets, and he missed out on a really fun interview this week. We're going to sit down with veteran trader, bond guy, uh, John Zimpano. John was actually, he started down on the floor in 1986, specifically traded in the bonds, has a great story about humility, um, understanding risk management, understanding what you're able to do as a trader. Um, he's going to dive into that a little bit. We also have John Doherty, Top Step's own mentor. So when John got into this industry, he went and started working with John uh, Zimpano, taught him everything he knows. And uh, we're fortunate enough to have JD join us in this podcast here today. Just so everyone knows, markets have been volatile, wild, and out of control. Um, we're going to talk a lot about risk management. We're going to talk about what it takes to be active in markets that are this hectic. I think that's the right word. I, you know, I feel like volatile is almost overused at this point. Every time I look at CNBC, there's a new adjective describing what they think of the markets. Uh, markets plummet, markets crumble, markets tank. Um, today, a little bit more positive. Uh, last Friday, we had a little bit of excitement, a little lift. So volatility seems to be the name of the game right now. And uh, so let's dive into this interview with John um, and see what he has to say about this volatility and his experience trading markets like this. Morning, everyone. I am Dan Hodgman, um, and I'm really excited. We've got uh, Jack is out of the office today, so um, JD and I are sitting down with John. John, thank you for being here. Uh, really excited to have you with thank us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's just kind of start from the very beginning. What got you into the industry? Well, I uh, certainly was motivated by greed. Basically, uh, one of my closest friends, I don't know if I should mention his name, he's, he's, a, he's a great man. So I was very close with his son where we went to high school at St. Ignatius. Uh, we were going to go to uh, college, uh, to the same college, but uh, he ended up going to Loyola. I ended up going somewhere else. But uh, we basically uh, were, you know, been lifelong friends where we continue to, I continue to speak to him on a daily basis. But basically I started at the, uh, at the Merck. I was a, uh, ARB clerk in the Deutschmark pit for a great, great man. Uh, his name was Tony Palicki. I was there for a while. I moved myself up to number two in the group. And I thought that I was going to get a shot at trading there. And, uh, as it turned out, it did not work out. And so I kind of decided that um, I was going to leave. So I went uh, to Europe and rode my bike through Europe for the better part of 11 months. Oh, that sounds nice. And, um, you know, I honestly, this is a very true story. I didn't think I was going to come back. So I thought I was going to live my life in, in Europe. Well, back in those days, because I'm an old man, 
you didn't have cell phones and the only way to communicate with my family back in, in the United States was through Western Union. Well, as it turned out, I had a, uh, you know, like a specified, uh, uh, because I didn't have much money. Uh, I collect called my mother and my mother said that she goes, Mike Garber's been trying to get a hold of you. You know, he needs to talk to you about, uh, coming to work at the board of trade. So I'm like, ah, you know, I mean, my hair was long, you know, I mean, I was in <laughs> phenomenal shape. I was riding my bike a hundred miles a day with my, with one of my closest this friends. This was a bicycle. Bicycle. I was thinking something with a motor. Holy cow. Oh, no. 11 months on a bicycle. Right, bicycle. Whew. Living on the side of roads and, and uh, living in youth hostels that were $12 a night in massive warehouses with, with, you know, single showers where all the guys would uh, shower and stuff. It was very, uh, I'd say, robust in there <laughs> and stuff. So Mike said, he goes, I've got a job for you. You can work for me, but you have to come back now. And uh, I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to or, or whatever. And as it turned out, you know, I, I was, I, I know exactly where I was. I was in uh, Greece. I just got off the, the islands. I was back in Athens and I said to myself, you know what, maybe this is, maybe I should go back. Maybe this wasn't going to be the, uh, the, you know, the end all be all and stuff. So I got back on the plane and the rest is history. I started in, uh, 1986 working for Mike Arbor and, uh, I was also working for Bill Strickland. I stood right off to the right where, uh, from Johnny Musso. Okay. Bill Strickland was the offensive lineman at Alabama for Johnny Musso. <laughs> and stuff. So he was a rather large guy, but a very, you know, a good old Southern boy, a great guy and stuff. Johnny Musso, I can't say enough how, how, what of a, what a, what a really, you know, great man he was and stuff and still is, you know, I, I just saw him and stuff by accident. And, uh, that was it. I mean, we, we started in, uh, in 86. Um, I, uh, you know, had to lease my seat. So I, you know, I had nothing you know, uh, to show, you know what I'm saying? So I went to, um, uh, Mike's father and I basically said, you can count on me to pay my debts. I'm going to keep myself in line and on and on and on. A as it turned out in 1987 in October, which was the preeminent crash of, of that decade, probably, you know, since the 1920s, 1930s, was probably the single busiest three or four months I had ever seen in my life. And it actually turned out to be very profitable uh, for me and stuff. I learned so much about risk and, you know, and everything else. As a side note, when I hit 1988, I thought I knew more than everybody else. <laughs> In the start of January, I started taking larger and larger positions with more and more risk. Most of the time they would, they would go my way and, and, you know, I would, you know, be whole or I'd make some money. Well, it got to a point where they didn't and I ended up losing everything that I had and my boss, whatever partner, whatever, however you'd want to say it said, you're out. So I was literally out of a job, out of the group, out of the board of trade. So I had to go and try to find a job. So I went to all these, all these Japanese banks because the Japanese were huge players in, in, uh, 
in the markets. And as it turned out, nobody wanted me. Nobody wanted a, a guy with that didn't have an MBA. Nobody wanted a guy that didn't graduate from Harvard or Penn or any of these other, you know, uh, elite business schools. So as it turned out, I was very humbled. I was, I was, you know, my parents didn't have the money to give me to, you know, sustain myself and stuff. I had a live-in girlfriend at the time who had kind of grown accustomed to the little bit of the finer things that the Board of Trade could deliver. So that was a strain in and of itself. I ended up at, by the end of the year, going back to Mike Arbor, groveling and saying, I disappointed myself. I disappointed your father. I disappointed you. And I embarrassed you in front of your customers, our customers, because it was just a fiasco. He's like, I'll let you back in. That was 19. That was in January. A year later, 1989. I never looked back. I never had another losing uh, year because I was incredibly disciplined. I saved my money and I learned that you're no bigger than the market, number one. And number two, the most important thing is save your money for a rainy day because a rainy day always happens. It's and right that's pretty much my uh, my story. John came on board with me in uh, 2001 as a very young man <laughs> and stuff, but uh, he was uh, absolutely, we, we gelled right from the start. We did have a few characters in our crew that John had to keep a... Uh, uh, an eye on and stuff and, and kind of manage, uh, Chris, I'm not going to mention your last name, but if you are listening to this, you know it and stuff, but, uh, call we, the snake, how you doing snake? You're right. <laughs> the snake. And, uh, John just turned out to be a fabulous partner in this. I could not have done, you know, any of the work that we did in the two thousands without John. He was, uh, you know, he's a phenomenal kind of uh, understanding of risk and and how uh, flow and stuff like that because markets changed after 2000. The, the advent of the computer was happening probably in 97, 99. And, um, you know, a lot of people were leaving in 2000 because they thought that, uh, that it was going to go completely automated. But there was a arbitrage a huge arbitrage opportunity for at least seven, eight, nine years starting in 2000 that really nobody realized except for John and myself. And we made it work. It was a great opportunity. I got a question for you. You brought yeah. up a really interesting thing. 1987, we're talking the crash of 87. We're kind of in a situation, I would say today's the closest thing we have seen to that 87 crash where these market conditions are. Right. It currently is Thursday morning, 9 a.m. Central Time. We Last I looked, we were lock limit down at 7%. How would you approach this? If you know, We have a lot of new traders with us. We have experienced traders. You went through this in 87. How would you talk to someone right now that's trying to either A, enter the market or B, make a decision of if it's even worth trading? Well, it's always worth trading. That's, that's number one. Okay, always. Well, you want to be in the game, so you have to be in the game. So you have to be engaged in the process. But you also have to understand risk, your risk. Obviously, there's risk managers, um, which were different from my day because, you know, it's real time now. Your, your risk manager can see your position, can see what you're up or down immediately. So with that, 
you have to be cognizant of the risk. If I was a young trader right now, it's not my game because, you know, screens and non-interpersonal communication and stuff like that doesn't work for me. I like to be verbal and stuff like that. But I would tell your traders to stay engaged. Understand that, number one, you don't want to catch a falling knife. I know it's arcane to, to say something like that. But as long as you have levels that you can trust, that you can believe in, then your guys should be engaged in those levels. And I'll tell you the levels right now in the S&P, 2450 to 2500 is a definite buy level. It's going to look ugly at those levels. It's going to look like, wow, what's this guy talking about? He's, he's full <laughs> of, you know, you know what. But that's what it is. It's always worse before it turns. I'm not saying that that level is going to be the level that's going to catapult this market back up, but it's something that it's going to hold and you'll get a bounce. Now, you can get a short-term trading bounce where you're going to make a few bucks, maybe a lot of bucks, and you'll get maybe a five or ten percent move up, and you know, you know, you you know, you you get rid of half your position. You know what I'm saying? But you have to stay engaged in buying and selling and positioning yourself. The day-to-day things of buying at one and selling at two are very difficult and probably not very profitable in 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 this day and age. But if you keep to your levels and understand flow. You know you're gonna you're gonna come out ahead, especially with the advent of these uh, logarithms. You know you're dealing not with humans, you're dealing with AIs. You know what I'm saying? And these uh, type of you know are are usually one way, and they keep pushing the market one way. Well, they're wrong too. They're not always right. You know they're not technically driven. You know some of them are, but they're mostly event driven. And that's the thing that I would tell your your traders to be cognizant of. Stay disciplined, stay in the game, and I guarantee you, you're going to end up making money. Absolutely. I think I think that's the biggest thing. It's I, growing up my whole life, my dad would always tell me the same thing. You know, a lot of guys on the floor, they leave early on Fridays or Tuesday. Hey, they got a good morning. I'm going to go hit the golf course. And my dad always told me, he goes, those days, I'd have a good morning. And everyone else would leave and I would stay until the bell in the afternoon. And you know what? I'd double my day. I'd have an even better day. And he goes, he he looks at it. He goes, I retired at 53 years old and now I get to play all the golf I want. And he goes, good. But I stayed there. I was always there. And it's kind of left an imprint on me. If I can be there, I'm going to be there to take advantage of the opportunities. And as long as, like you said, it's all about managing your risk. If you can control that risk. And I think the biggest thing is understanding what kind of appetite for risk you have as a trader because everyone's so different. It's hard to say, well, you only risk a thousand in a trade or only risk, you know, 2% of whatever you have. It gets really tough. So you have to understand yourself as a trader when it comes to understanding risk. And I think that's one of the biggest questions every trader should be asking themselves. Absolutely. And I think that the the most important thing is, and, and that's a that's a philosophy that, you know, your family did that I did as well. You would have a lot of people in the old days when we had, you know, traders on the floor and we were in the largest pit. Uh, there was probably close to 700 at its at its heyday on the new floor in 97. I probably ran and between so, your legs at one point when I was right. a little kid because my dad used to send me in there to get to his broker. I would run through the pit as a little, little kid because I could squeeze through the legs 
And I always knew the guys to run up to. I could put my hand up and they'd throw a 20 in my hand. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and that was, you know, that, that's just, there were a lot of men of integrity on that floor and stuff. And, but that is a key point that you said. And that's something that I would, I would instill upon your traders. I, like your family, didn't leave after making X, whatever that money X by nine o'clock or say an unemployment number, which was always busy, was always opportunity there. There would be guys gone at 8 a.m. and stuff. You made the real money when everybody left because those guys in the pit, it's a hierarchy. The guys on the third step, because all the guys on the second step were making money, moved to the second step. The guys on the second step, because all the guys were making big money on the first step, would get on to the first step. So that is a key. And that's something that I, I would instill on, on the traders, even though they're, it's not interpersonal anymore. It's, it's that it's like, you know, make those incremental gains, stay, stay in the game, stay focused, uh, from seven twenty in the morning till two o'clock or eight thirty to, uh, three o'clock, whatever you do, you know, stay engaged because I guarantee you, you're going to come out ahead. Not everybody's going to win. Obviously, it's a zero-sum game. I get it. Everybody gets it. But I said the more time that you can spend, the more discipline that you can do, the more profitable you will be. Some people will make enormous amounts of money because of their gift. And there's some people that are going to lose everything and are going to be gone. And I know that feeling because it happened to me. But I also seen the flip side. Like you, I retired at 44. So and what, what more a, can you ask for? Absolutely, and I and let John uh, take over, and he he did a great job and stuff like that. But now he's on to bigger and better things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you know, John. Um, we have a morning show every day, the market forecast, and uh, I saw so, some of the videos. I, I thought so it was you've very heard the nickname. You've heard the nickname, the dancing bear. Yes, that's what that's what we like to call him, the dancing bear. He never used to be this portly. <laughs> <laughs> this is a reason for not enough, for sure. <laughs> he was uh, when I met him. He was a skinny, scrawny kid that was still finishing up college. But go ahead. How times have changed, haven't they? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Those first first years on the floor were great. Uh, we were weren't we the first guinea pigs for TT? Absolutely. We. Uh, we had a quest, and even back then, which was, um, you know, we were with a group at uh, at Goldenberg Haymire. Chris Haymire, you know, just a, a visionary. He's still in the business, but we came. John and I came up to this with this concept, and we were dealing with the IT guys, and we were like, we need faster execution. You know, as fast as we can get. So we were the first with this other individual too. But we were the guinea pigs that were using video cards to put into our computers to give us just a legally a a hair faster execution time and stuff, and it made a huge difference. That's really interesting. Yes, Nvidia uh, uh, gaming cards. It's it's funny you say that when we were on the floor, a bunch of us we all wanted to be on the the Nextel headset phones because we could bring them home and we could use them from the house. And my dad, he was my boss at the time. He was a hundred percent against it. There was this old school phone down there that no one else was using except for our team. And they were archaic and they were bulky and you had to charge them. You ran through three or four batteries a day. I hated it. 
And finally, one day I was like, all right, I'm the boss's son. I can go up and I, I can just tell him we're changing. And I said to him, I'm like, dad, we're done with these. These things suck. The, the clerks that are running batteries all day long are exhausted from it. Like we, we're, we don't have enough batteries to keep us going. He goes, no, there's zero delay on these phones. The Nextel phone has a 0.5 second delay. That means we get hedged faster than anyone else. And I was like, all right, never mind. That works for me. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's the name of the game. It's, it's those minor little differences make right. all the difference. Right. Especially when you got to its infancy and you can see it now. You can see that co-location. You know, there is, you know, DRW and, and Sentinel and a jump trading. You know, you go out to Aurora and there's telephone poles that are costing $500,000 to buy. And there's little plots of land that are a million dollars because they're, they're right next to the, to the, the, the server room. It was the same thing in the infancy when we started. Guys on the floor that had the tablets that weren't hardwired in there were slower, even though they were, they, even though they were direct, they were slower than me being on a headset and John being up in an office next to the server room, hardwired with a gaming card. And it, there, we did it, we did it both ways. We did it on the floor and tried that. And John, because, you know, he's a very bright guy, realized he's like, we're faster up here. And I would, you know, John, we would talk constantly on the heads. I'm like, check the speed. He's like, good, good. <laughs> a lot of times, you know what I'm saying? And that's how we evolved in the infancy of, of the training. And we were faster, totally legal, but we were faster. And, you know, that made a, that made a huge difference. Changes everything. That speed right. that you had. Right. And look at it now. And what these guys are doing now and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but, you know, their speed is so fast that they can see the depth of the market. I mean, you would be an OIA, which is Office of Audits and Investigation, and you would be suspended or expelled if you were revealing your depth in your deck. It, I mean, it is. I mean, I was a broker. I, I know that, that that is a huge no-no. You know what I'm saying? But now it's gotten to a point in the – with these – Uber computers that they can see the flow. So they can say, oh, there's X at 12. There's, you know, there's stops at, at 14. Let's run them down to, you know, get everybody to, to be on the same side of those seven. And then they'll buy them all back and stuff. So it made a huge difference. So let me ask you a question. Obviously, you guys are some of the, it's kind of fun. I get to talk to both of you guys about the same thing. So you guys were some of the first ones to integrate technology into your systems. We've all seen the uh, the documentary floored. We've all heard the the kind of the horror stories of traders not accepting the screens. Um, what was that transition like? What really got you guys to say, "Let's get to these computers ASAP. Let's start doing this. This is where the industry's going." We just saw the opportunity. There was an arb there. We saw it. We took advantage of it. And can you just clarify for anyone out there listening exactly what arbitrage is? We were scalping the pit against the screen. That's it. So you're getting one price in the pit and you're getting a different price on the screen and you're able to fill those orders and make some good money doing it. And I know a lot of guys that did it. Right. And a lot of times in its infancy, say 2000 to, you know, whatever, till, till the markets became more mature, where the screen became more dominant in the early 
times when John started with me, there was plenty of paper, you know, the physical orders from the brokerage houses in the pit, along with large, you know, not overtly large, but volume on the screen. Obviously, as that migrated towards the screen, the opportunity, the ARB became less and less and less. And by, you know, 2007, 2008, it was very difficult. But that 2000 time frame, and especially with John from 1 to 01 to 7, there was enormous opportunity as long as you were, you know, you were on it, you were close to the brokers on the pit, which we were, because as I said before, in, in 2000, most of the old timers or the guys that really did well decided that, you know, they were moving on. So as the, as the human pool got smaller, the opportunity got larger. And that was a thing that lasted for a while. I'm, I was shocked that it took as long as it did to migrate to the screen, but it did. I was thinking the same thing when you were talking about the years there. I I was starting to think to myself, I'm like, man, it took that long for people to really catch that edge and figure that one out. But you made a great point. The older the guys that have been there for a long time, it's hard to adjust. I see it in traders even to today. Something that worked last year worked so well for our markets. Last year we were, if anyone out there forgot, last year we were in a bull market. Now we're in a bear market. Um, but you're still you take that mentality, you carry it into a different market state and you have a hard time accepting that you have to adjust at this point. Um, so I find that just tremendously interesting that it took that long for people to recognize that edge. Everything in the, in the industry, you know, takes longer to mature, all right, to make an analogy there and stuff. Now, you know, how these markets operate and how these huge operations operate there really isn't a avenue for, you know, point and click. You know what I'm saying? All the money is poured into IT where these guys are spending, I heard the number for DRW, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars a month or more into IT just to keep their computers relevant. Do I think that these computers and the way that trading is done now has exacerbated these huge moves? Absolutely. Absolutely. The lack of interpersonal communication, the lack of, you know, guys like John who traded on the screen uh, for years and stuff like that, all those guys have, are gone. They've been eliminated by machines that, you know, are, you know, see what, you know, I, I don't understand the entire concept of it. But know, basically know your position and just hammer you until they cost you all your money and then, you know, whatever capital you have and you're out and stuff. And that's a big thing for me. The reason why I retired, not because I wanted to leave the game. I love the game. I missed the game for years. You know, that was my identity and I lost that. And I was in kind of a dark place because I lost my identity after I retired. I didn't know, you know, there was nothing there. I'm I'm in a great place now and I've always been afterwards. It's not a financial thing, it was just a head thing, but I never was going to transition from a pit to a screen like John did. John was always a, a screen guy even though his family's been uh involved in lumber and in commodities for 
generations, probably, uh, you know, that never appealed to me. And so that's the thing that I, I find most fascinating about what is happening now, especially what's happening today with, you know, with another 7% move down. I mean, it, it is extraordinary what is, what has occurred in the last four weeks. It would never be like that. It's polar opposite of what happened in 87. And I would say 87 is as close to a panic as we have now. 08 was different. It was a financial panic where credit markets were frozen and money markets weren't, weren't paying out at a dollar. You know what I'm saying? This is more of a global you know, situation where it's irrational. I mean, I would say today is irrational that it's you know going down but how do you step in and say i'm going to buy this thing when it's you know the s&p is down 800 points in the in the span of 3 weeks you know what i'm saying that's why I, and i bring this back to discipline you have to be disciplined your traders have to be engaged and say this is crazy this is a great level yeah my may i take heat on this yeah i'm never going to just buy the bottom but I'm telling you, I'm going to be in a good place three months, six months, one year out. You know what I'm saying? This position is going to be good. I can build from here. See, you're in the bond pits. And we're talking about these moves we have right now. I think Monday we saw an 11-handle move. To talk about irrational, let's look back. And I've been around the bonds since some of my first words were, Dan Hodgman, what are bonds? I was my, I'd hear my dad on the phone all the time. And I would walk around the house and I'd just put my hand up to my face and say, Dan Hodgman, what are bonds? We've been around him for a long time. I don't think I've ever heard of an eleven-handle move. What does that say to you? We'll we'll go to an example from 1987 because I was there in the in the crash of 1987. Okay, the bonds were lock limit up three points. Okay, some orders were filtering into the pit. The London bonds were eight to nine points higher, and so basically. If you were able to get any any of the paper and there was stuff trading in there, you were able to leg it out nine points higher. That just shows you how extreme, how unbelievable that move was that somebody was willing to pay nine points higher for that paper. Look at it now. The ultra bond two or three days ago, 12 point move, 12 point move notes or 30 year. Nine point move. That's extraordinary. That is just chaos. And the problem with that is, is that you have, you know, guys that are pricing parity traits, okay, pricing that they're just getting blown out of these positions because of these extreme moves. Where if you priced it normally and say, you know, we're on, we're Thursday, it shouldn't be 12 points higher. It might be a point higher. Or it may not even be. So that's the scary part about that. I think that's a great point because you're most most everyone are creating outlooks on this week. Even with volatility, you're not thinking this thing's going to move twelve points ahead. Even if you're just trading some sort of weekly positions, that is not calculated into your risk. I know a lot of guys that I've talked to recently that are still pretty active and they're trading. They've been long some premium, or excuse me, short premium. Um, they're just getting hammered. They're not able to even get out of their positions right now. And they're stuck and they already have accepted that they're done, but they have to stay to get out of the position. 
before they can do anything and they can walk away and accept their losses. It's tough right now. It's very, very difficult. And, you know, when you get into a situation with a 12-point move, you could be as disciplined as you want to, but you bring up a very strong point. There is no out. You know what I'm saying? It's the and, scariest part. And that's, you cannot quantify your risk when you have a 12-point move in an, ultra, in, a, in, a, in an ultra bond contract or a nine-point move. You know, the bottom line is, is that we are getting closer to negative rates. And you can see how negative rates have affected the economy in Europe negatively. You know what I'm saying? It's very bad. I don't want the United States to go to a negative rate policy because it's hard to get out of that. It kills savers. It kills every portion of the uh, credit markets. These moves in the ultra bond, the 10 year and stuff like that are catastrophic. Catastrophic. It's, you know, for a risk manager, like I met your risk managers and stuff like that. I don't think they have parameters on their computer to say, okay, what is it 12 points higher? What's this uh, Dan's uh, position to be? How much is this going to cost me? They don't even, that's not even factored in. I'm thinking back to when I was running theoreticals and running our risk on everything. When I was clerking, when I was younger, I, I can't even ever fathom the idea of having to look that far out. I know my, my risk sheets, I'd look at them and be like, it'd show a point higher and a point lower. And that, that'd be about it. And then I'd have to rerun my vols. I'd have to rerun spreads on everything just to get an idea of what it was, two points or three points. To think 12 points out is unfathomable. And to watch these markets the way they're moving right now. And, and I think it's like you said, it's, it's find those levels that you're so comfortable with that you trust in your system and your levels. Because I don't know, as a trader, the volatility, this is what we love to see. It's hard to sit out of this. You'll want to be active and um, trust in your system, trust in your levels and know your risk. Absolutely. You have to be confident in your in your levels. You know what I'm saying? And that's a self-confidence. You don't, it's not cocky. That, that's, you don't want to be. I learned that lesson in 1988 and it cost me my job and it cost me my, my reputation and it, you know, and it embarrassed me in front of my partners, you know, bosses, clients. So that's arrogance. And I deserved what I got. You know what I'm saying? But I came back and I learned from that. And now that's why I preach discipline, knowing your levels and sticking with it. Is there going to be some pain? You're never going to buy the bottom. If you do, I think that's fantastic. And and uh, color yourself the luckiest man in the world. If you if you bought S and P's March 9th, two thousand and nine, when everything on the planet was imploding, then my God, more power to you. But Great I highly job. doubt. Right, I highly <laughs> doubt that you did. And if you did, it was pure luck. You know, I'm not saying walk away from your computer from the levels that you have. Obviously, stay there. But understand that I'm doing, you know, you have to come with a mindset of a, of a strong mindset. You have to come with a mindset of like, I like these levels. These levels are going to hold. It's going to be a little painful for a little bit, but I know I'm right and stuff. And that's it. It's different than, you know, just catching a falling knife where you're saying, oh, it can't go any lower here. You have to have a disciplined, you know, technical approach to what you're doing and stuff. And it's difficult. 
March 9th, 2009 was difficult. This is insanity right now. This is panic-driven selling. You know what I'm saying? And here's the here's the funny thing. And I said this to a, a good friend of mine. You know, with these with these buy only mutual funds, there's a bunch of uh, whippersnappers, as I like to call it, like like <laughs> you, Dan and and John, maybe ten years ago. You know what I'm saying? That have never seen a bear market, so they don't they don't know, uh, you know, how to trade it. But when these guys get out, that's the bottom. There's no doubt in my mind. It happened in 08. It happened in 87. Markets are going to, over the long run, trend higher. They're always going to outperform credit assets. You know, they're always going to give you bang for your buck and stuff like that. It's these times, 08, 87, uh, 2001, which was ugly. I mean, my God, it took, what, 12 years for the NASDAQ or even longer to get back to parity? I think it was even longer. Right. You know what I'm saying? So there can be a lot of, I mean, talk about excess, the dot-com boom, Enron, you know, all those things. And see, that's the problem that we're having right now. No one really knows where the bottom is. Uh, Here's a good example. Second week of January, the shale operators in North Dakota, Pennsylvania, uh, Canada and whatnot, they're down 78% of value, meaning they're basically bankrupt. You know what I'm saying? Unless you have, you know, you're backed by a strong company or yeah, whatever. no one's got that much cash. You're right. You're, you're in deep crap. Here's another thing. Here, here's another example of, uh, and I found that fascinating, the XLE. If you bought the XLE in 2005, Okay, the markets, you know, after 08 was up, uh, you know, 200%. If you bought the XLE and didn't do anything, buy and hold, just like uh, 401ks, just like, you know, how big pension fund managers do. Today, you would have never have made money. You would have lost money. You know what I'm saying? The entire time you lost money. And that's the thing that is critical you know, about this. It's the reason why the NASDAQ didn't recover, you know, its excesses and stuff like that. And that's why discipline is, you know, is really the 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 name of the game and stuff. And you're going to lose a lot of participants here, which is going to make liquidity even, you know, more shaky. Taking an example of a company that I own, which I, you know, believe in wholeheartedly, CME Group. It's down another 20 some dollars today, I think. I mean, literally from the high, it's down, what, uh, it's what, 180, so uh, 30, $34, $35 in a span of a couple of weeks. And these guys are killing it volume-wise. Oh, yeah. It just goes to show you, you know what I'm saying, that when markets get irrational, this is what happens. CME should be at 225 with the amount of money that they're that they've been making. It's not. It's down $30. It's that panic. It's the fear. Everyone's kind of just trying to liquidate. And for me, my biggest issue with the whole thing is this panic is around something we have no control over. It's not an economic collapse yet. Right. What it can lead to, and maybe that's what we're seeing in these markets People looking ahead saying this is going to lead to some sort of economic collapse. Maybe that's what it is. At the end of the day, um, I think we're all pretty blessed as traders because we get to take advantage of each 
directional move. We can be long and we can be short, whereas the normal consumer out there doesn't really have that option to short some of these markets, to short some some of these opportunities. And um, it's just some wild times that we're in. I absolutely agree. Obviously, it's going to affect the global economy. If if we're not in uh, a recession in the second quarter, we certainly will be. GDP is going to we're going to lose at least a point, maybe two percentage points of GDP in the first quarter. The second quarter will probably be negative. We could be anywhere in the third quarter between three and five percent negative GDP growth. That's staggering. That not only affects the top, it affects everybody down to the dishwasher. The the economy is itself is not grinding to a halt, but it's getting very, very scary. Once people start pulling back, you saw it in 08 and 09, housing collapse, people weren't traveling, people weren't uh, vacationing, no restaurants, no nothing, not buying anything, cars or whatever. It has a self-fulfilling prophecy. It also snowballs. It starts down as a little a little snowball and gets to, you know becomes a huge boulder and to get that confidence back takes years the market's recovered but i can tell you that you know personal consumption and and personal spending didn't recover till 2012 3 years later how long this one's going to take is anybody's guess we're in a economic environment a strong economic environment okay uh, like him or hate him, I'm I'm not I'm not saying, but you know, bad orange man, like her or hate him, his policies of deregulation have helped. You know, the middle class they have helped minorities, Latino, African American, or whatever they have helped. Nobody likes his rhetoric. Nobody, you know, kinder, gentler. But here, but I I often say this to the people on the other side, and I'm not trying to be political. Would you rather be in a situation? with a guy like him, or would you rather go back to where it was eight years ago where you had growth at maximum growth of 1% or 1.9, or would you rather have 2.53% growth? You know what I'm saying? And lower and and better economic conditions. That's going to be a stark choice in November. It couldn't happen worse for this president or anybody else right now. And that's going to be a stark contrast, you know, to everything else. And I'm sure you're going to edit this out and stuff, but uh, <laughs> Biden is nutso. It's, he's not going to be running. He's not going to be running the country. There's going to be a puppet behind him and holding him up, propping him up and stuff and shaking his arms. But that's my point. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's that, is that this, like 2009, economic activity trickles down. It, it affects everybody. You know what I'm saying? From the car dealership owner to the guy that washes the car after the service has been done. You know what I'm saying? And that's a critical thing. Right now, you know, it, this was a very good um, quote, you know, a very good stat. You know, at the beginning of the year, there was, I believe, a hundred or 120,000 new, and I'm not sure of the exact number, new 401k millionaires, Okay. That should mean something. That should mean something to John and to me and to Dan and to everybody, you know, that, that, you know, something to aspire to, or maybe you're one of those, uh, of those things. Now it's the total opposite. You know what I'm saying? 
Now you've got guys that ha- were up 30% and now are going to be, you know, their 401ks are going to be down 30 or more, depending on, you know, which, uh, you know, whippersnapper is managing their money. You know what I'm saying? And that, <laughs> and that's the thing. They're, they're, these kids are brilliant. I've, I've met these kids from, uh, from Wharton. I've met these kids from McDonough at Georgetown. They're, they're brilliant. Like my son, brilliant. You know what I'm saying? But they wouldn't know a freaking, they wouldn't have any common sense if it was staring in their face. Analytically and, and mentally, they're superior. Common sense, you know, you get, a, you get them into a situation like we have right now, they don't know what to do. They're deer in the headlights. Huh? They, they, their hands aren't on the screen trading it for an opportunity. They're frozen in fear. And by the time they unfreeze, we'll be turning back, the, back the opportunity was gone and right. stuff like that. And that's the key thing that Dan brought up and, and John brought up and stuff about discipline. Stay in the game. This, this is perfect. So, John, this has just been spectacular. I have one last question for you. Um, we have a lot of listeners out there, and I think I already know the answer, but if there's one thing you would say to all the traders out there listening, what would that be? Stay in the game. Honest to God, I believe that there is going to be ample opportunity today and in the coming days and months to make money. You can change your life if you stay in the game. Don't be driven by fear. Be driven by opportunity. Sounds like a quote. Some, some, I mean, we're going to have to, we'll have to quote that somewhere. That's, that's perfect. I was thinking stay disciplined. But this was awesome. So I can't thank you enough for sitting down with us. Um, This has been enlightening and a a great opportunity. Thank you very much uh, for having me. I I really enjoyed uh, myself. And, uh, you know, I hope we can do that again. Absolutely. I I was already thinking about it maybe towards the end of the year. We'll take a look back at what we talked about here. Absolutely. And see how things have turned around by end of year. I never even felt compelled to contribute. I just enjoyed sitting here listening. (laughs) (laughs) Outstanding. Well, thank you very much, everybody, and I will, uh, I'll talk to you shortly. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for making it through the interview. Um, I had a great time sitting down with John. It's always fun uh, hearing a couple of Bond guys talking about the, the glory days. That's kind of the area that I grew up in as a child throughout my whole life. That's where I kind of started on the floor. I was in the options side, not quite the futures, but you guys know that. So much knowledge coming from John, and I think he talks about a lot of stuff really nicely, but it's all about if you're going to be engaged, which as traders, this is the time of, this is the kind, these are the kind of markets that we want to be active in, and you have to understand your risk each and every day, each and every trade when you're looking at this, understanding where you're getting in, and know where you're going to be wrong, and I think that's something that John talked about really nicely. He talked about um, in the beginning, when he had that little bit of an issue, I ended up losing that account. He learned a lot about knowing when to call it, knowing when you're wrong, kind of creating that humility, something that's extremely important for all traders to understand that humility. So I think if there's anything to take away from this, that to me really resonated quite well. Also, I think um, I just can't thank him enough. And I, I want to thank J.D., uh, for getting him into the office. And uh, I hope to be able to maybe talk to him again in the future. So those of you guys out there that listen to this, thank you very much. As always, please rate, subscribe, sign up. Let us know what you think of this podcast, the 
The more we get from you guys, the better we can make these. Also, don't forget to check out our Top Step Traders Facebook community, topsteptrader.com slash Facebook. Don't forget to check out our blog. A lot of great stuff going on right now, especially with these volatile markets. We're all kind of diving in and writing our thoughts. And lastly, uh, we may all be working from home, but our our YouTube live shows are still going. So uh, come join us on YouTube every morning at 8 a.m. Central Time for the Market Forecast with John Hoagland and 3 p.m. Central Time on the Market Recap with me, Dan Hodgman. Other than that, you guys have a great weekend. Thank you very much for tuning in, and uh, I will see you guys next week on a really fun interview I'm looking forward to. So trade well, and as Jack says, namaste. The Limit Up Podcast is produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.